Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Christ and Me with Addie, where we seek to live out a John 3.30 life. John 3.30 says he must become greater and greater and I less and less. Let's be real. In today's world, it can seem impossible to live out what the Bible calls us to do. Not only can it be hard to understand sometimes, but finding the time to read the Bible, to understand the Bible, to know the Bible, it can just be overwhelming. So I created this podcast so we could walk alongside each other, share some of our stories and struggles, but also where the Lord is bringing us so that we can encourage one another and stay rooted in his word. It's my prayer that you walk away from each episode saying, I know that that is Christ in me. I know Christ in me. So let's get into today's topic. Welcome back to Christ and Me with Addie. I'm so excited, you guys, because we just hit 7,500 streams on Christ and Me, which is just so cool and so encouraging to me. So if you're listening to this resource, please, please take a screenshot right now and add it to your story or send it to a friend because... I want to get this resource in as many people's hands as possible. I know there are so many amazing Christian podcasts out there. My true heart is not to compete with anybody, but to collaborate, to, to just overwhelm the podcast market with godly content so that people can know that there's answers out there. If you have big questions for God, there are answers out there. And so what I try to do through this podcast is kind of take where God has led me and compile it into small digestible episodes to help you guys not feel overwhelmed as you're learning and studying and and seeking God. And I have to admit, I've learned so much in the process as well. Know that I am no like special superhuman, like we all have the ability to come to this understanding with Christ. And so that is why I want you to share this. And if you can take time to review the show, um, leave a comment, this helps other people find the show as well. So some other cool updates on CIM is that I've started interviewing some amazing guests here on the podcast. If there's anyone that you would love to hear from um, or see on the show, you can reach out to me at Addie Overla on Instagram. If there's a certain topic you want to hear covered or anything like that, you can always reach out to me at Addie Overla on Instagram. So today's episode is all about dealing with disappointment. We'll cover the question of why does suffering exist? You know, I think a lot of times suffering is very strongly linked to disappointment. And that also brings about the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Or, you know, why, if there's a good God, why are there, you know, people starving in the world? And so we're going to talk about disappointment, but we're also going to talk about suffering. And I want to kind of talk about what brought about this episode idea. So this past week, I posted a reel that randomly got like, almost 2 million views. And it was of me saying, when you ask Jesus for a sign, and I need to add some context, I was praying to Jesus and I was just saying, Jesus, like, I just wish you could give me a sign about this. I just wish you could direct me just so clearly on this. And ironically that day, I kid you not, there was a hand-painted sign in an intersection that I frequent all the time that said Jesus in handwritten like um, spray paint letters. And I just could not stop laughing at God's humor. He gave me the sign reminding me he's still there, he's still listening, but it wasn't necessarily the sign that I was hoping for. So this video blew up and 
it, it was just shocking to me how many people, uh, well, I'll talk about the good thing first. A lot of people started talking about God moments that they had where, where God met them in their, in their prayer or in their questions. But then where the post kind of went viral is people commenting the opposite that said, yeah, God's hilarious because, you know, there's children starving in the world or yeah, God's so funny because, you know, this person has cancer and they were just such like bleak and sort of skeptic views on God. And so for God to answer, quote unquote, my request, while so many people are suffering in the world, it seemed like the comment section quickly turned into a support group of highly disappointed and discouraged souls. The video going viral made me realize that there are so many in the world who are disappointed and who turn that disappointment to blame of God. Many blame them, blame him for their suffering and disappointments, and many have a very bleak outlook on life as a result. So how do we navigate the presence of suffering and disappointment in this life? Is it God's fault when we're disappointed and prayers aren't answered the way we hope? Is suffering a reason to be disappointed in God? So before we dive too deep into these questions, I want to mention a great topic that I already covered called, Does Prayer Really Work? Before tackling how to deal with disappointment, it's important to understand how prayer works, why we pray, and why we can trust that when we pray, God is working in it every time. So I want to refer you first to my episode titled, Does Prayer Really Work? Okay, so back to the story I was telling. It's true. We will see obvious answered prayers, sometimes in the lives of others, sometimes in our own lives. But disappointment is is inevitable. Disappointment is a result of, of a broken world that's affected by sin. From failed relationships to unfulfilled dreams, life can be filled with sorrow and disappointment. And in fact, Jesus assures us of this. It says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. No one is immune. You know, when I was a kid, I remember my dad um, used to not let us say a few things in the house. Like we weren't allowed to say, but you had to say seat. (laughs) We weren't allowed to say booger. That was like my dad's trigger word. If you said that, you might as well just throw yourself out the window. But the biggest one that he wouldn't let us say is that's not fair. We weren't allowed to say that. It's not fair. And as an adult, I get it now because truly life isn't fair. God is fair. God is just but life isn't fair. How often do we let a suffering situation convince us of who God is? How often do we let our situation paint how we picture the goodness of God? You know, until Jesus returns again to right every wrong, we will continue to see an imbalance in things. We'll question why this happened or why that happened, and we will notice a lack of fairness but that's where faith and trust in a good God come in. I think one of the hardest things in life is accepting that God's plan, his great plan for you may involve suffering. I've seen God fully heal sickness from people, but I've also seen, you know, God change a heart of stone or or a perspective in a person that was still taken by a sickness. Accepting that God is still good no matter our circumstances isn't contingent on whether or not he takes away our suffering. Our blessings come through obedience, not the absence of suffering. I've said this before in another podcast episode, but what happened to Jesus wasn't fair. He was the only good and sinless person to live. He did nothing to deserve the death that he was given. 
So why would we for a second believe that we have to be free from suffering to be in the presence of a good God? God doesn't want us to be harmed or hurt, but the fact of the matter is that suffering is inevitable in a broken world. For him to end all of the suffering would be for Jesus to return, the second coming that's promised. And scripture says that while that day is promised, only God knows the exact day that will be. So we should live every day. We should live every day like Jesus is coming back with the hope and faith of a pain-free eventual life with him in heaven where all is restored. So when people say, you know, well, why is that child sick with cancer? Why are people starving in the world? We can't blame God for a promise that he has made that we just haven't seen the fulfillment of yet. If we've seen the fulfillment of Christ dying and rising from the dead, why wouldn't we hold on to the faith that he is coming again to right every pain and every wrong that we see in our lives today? So why am I touching so heavily on suffering when this episode is about disappointment? And it's because suffering is the precursor to disappointment. When our expectations are not met or when we suffer, disappointment can overrun our hearts. You know, I've seen friends suffer through infertility and become disappointed by their situation. I've seen family members suffer through health-related issues and become disappointed by a diagnosis. You know, even when I was in Kenya, I saw people suffering from hunger who were disappointed that we as a, a mission group there did not have enough for everyone in need. And suffering, you know, reminds us of our great need for God because most of the time he's the only one who can meet those needs. Most of the needs are too big for humanity. Suffering is real. Disappointment is real. But so is God. So how do we deal with it and not blame God? I think the first realization we have to come to is recognizing the reality of our situation. We know from scripture that there will be suffering on this side of heaven. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That verse is really important because, you know, they're writing about how our present sufferings, our, our current situation, the things that we're seeing right now on this side of heaven aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in heaven. So in a way they're saying, you know, it's okay. We can have hope. You know, it's not okay. What we're seeing is not okay, but we can have hope because it will be okay someday. And similarly, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, for our light and momentary affliction is producing in us an external weight of glory that is beyond comparison. Again, here we see we can't look at our present situation and even try to compare it to all that will be made right. The full glorification of God once heaven is revealed and Jesus comes back a second time. The hope in the present suffering points to a future glory when we all when all will be made right in heaven. And all those who believe in Jesus will who have lived a repentant life will be whisked away from the pains of this world. And it says in Revelation 21:4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When I was going through a serious season of disappointment, this is when I hadn't given my life to Christ yet, and I was seriously contemplating my life. I, I just didn't see the point 
of remaining uh, on this earth. And that's because I didn't know Jesus one. I didn't have the hope of Christ one. And you can hear this whole story in my testimony episode. But what really changed things for me was this quote that I heard one day from Christine Kane. And she said, every present disappointment is a future God appointment. Every present disappointment is a future God appointment. Meaning whatever I'm facing right now will be a moment for God's goodness to be fully revealed to me later. Whether on this side of heaven or not, I decided to choose to hold on to hope. Hope that one day, no matter what, I would still say he is good. You know, I I don't know what you're facing today or why you clicked on this episode topic, but maybe you're disappointed because you didn't score as high as you had hoped on a test or you were rejected for the, the college you were trying to get into. Maybe you're single and you've been praying for your spouse for a long, long time. Maybe you're disappointed because a job situation that you really wanted fell through and, you know, you don't know why that is and you're just feeling really discouraged. Maybe you're disappointed because you just went through another round of fertility counseling and treatments and you're still having trouble getting pregnant. Maybe you're disappointed because that person that you've been praying and praying and praying for is still living a life that causes you to worry daily for them. Whatever has you disappointed today, I want to assure you that God cares. He hears you. He sees you. He knows you more deeply than anyone on this planet. Your feelings and disappointments are valid to God. He doesn't see your situation as too big or too small. He doesn't shy away from your questions and your pain. And I think a beautiful example of this is Job in the Bible. You know, God allows Satan to test Job because God was so confident. He knew that no matter what Satan put him through, Job would still say God is good and would not curse God. And, you know, Job lost everything aside from his life. And I mean everything. God told him, you know, you can test him in any way, but you can't kill him. He lost his family, his property, his health, you name it, gone. He hit God with the hard questions Job did. When he was in the middle of his struggling, he pleaded with God. In fact, he tells God this suffering was no longer endurable in Job 30, 24 through 31. And he demands that God provide an explanation in Job 31, 35 through 37. And this next part that I'm going to read is from thebibleproject.com. They explain it so beautifully. Honestly, I couldn't even try to put it into my own words. So again, crediting this to thebibleproject.com, but it says, God asked Job all of these impossible questions like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever in your days commanded the morning light? Where does light live and where does darkness reside? Can you lead out a constellation in its season? And of course, the correct response to all these questions is for Job Job to say, no, I don't command the universe. I don't know the answer to any of these questions. No, I've only lived a short time. So Job here is, you know, demanding things of God, like, why God? Why this? Why that? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I suffering? Why this hardship, God? And God starts asking him, do you know how this works on the earth? Did you, do you know where, where the light comes from, where the dark comes from? Can you lead out a constellation in the universe? So in a way, God is kind of defending his job title and saying like, do you even know how much I do? You know, and so let's carry on in, in this conversation because it's really interesting. 
Job claimed that God has like fallen asleep at the wheel and running the universe. And because of his divine neglect, he's had to endure unjust suffering. God's response is indirect, and it shows how his attention is actually on every single detail of the operations of the universe. In fact, God is, you know, he's keen to to all kinds of perspectives and details that Job has never even imagined and never can or will. He asked Job if he's ever provided food for the lions or seen an isolated mountain goat giving birth. No, Well, perhaps Job understands the feeding patterns of the wild donkeys that roam the hills or ostriches and their strange ways for caring for their young. Maybe Job and God can have a stimulating conversation about Job's knowledge of war horses and the aerodynamics of an eagle soaring on thermal air currents. As it turns out, Job doesn't know as much as he thought, even about the world that he lives in and should be familiar with. At the end of God's invitations to dialogue, Job comes up with Job comes up short in his first response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, "Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice I will add nothing more." So, in this exchange, you know, Job is blaming God for his suffering. He's saying, do you even see me? Do you even notice me? Do you even know what I've just gone through? And God is talking about how he has orchestrated every single thing in life and how no matter what he's doing or what he does, he's caring for every single aspect of how our world works. So where's the comfort for Job in this? We get that that God has a big job title, but where's the comfort to Job in this? Let's carry on. Job's many accusations of divine neglect or incompetence have failed. As it turns out, God is intimately familiar with every molecule and creature in his world and knows more about them than Job can comprehend. This is an important moment in the story so far. Whatever reasons God has for allowing Job's suffering, neglect is not a viable option. Job never does find out why he suffered and neither does the reader. The goal of the book was never to offer us that information. Rather, the first divine speech makes clear that God does know everything that transpires in his world, and his perspective on the universe has a wide, wider range than any human will ever have. There may be evil and suffering in God's good world that, from one perspective, may seem needless, tragic, or unjust, but from a wider vantage point, there may be a vast network of factors that make some tragedy fit into a larger cause and effect pattern that bring out the saving of many lives. It's it's impossible for any human to know such things or have such a perspective. This means that all of our claims to evaluate God's rule over human history are always limited and will therefore always fall short. I don't have a wide enough vantage point to accuse God of incompetence, and I never will. So God kind of defends himself there. You know, when Job points the finger, blaming God, saying, you have neglected me, you've forgotten me, you've you've missed me here in my suffering. God says, no, I haven't. I've been doing this, 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 and this, and I see you. I know what's happening, but there's also this, this, and this going on. And and Job um, 
Well, let's just read the next part because it's pretty crazy. Once Job realizes that his thinking is limited as a human compared to an almighty God, he admits to not understanding and being accusatory of God. So in this next part, Job 40, 10 through 12, God basically invites Job to take a day in his shoes. If Job thinks he can do better, he says, you know, let's see if you can do better. He says, clothe yourself with honor and majesty, pour out your anger to overflowing and look on everyone who is proud and make him law low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Job will find this task impossible. It would require a second by second micromanagement approach that would essentially result in no more human beings on the planet. Job doesn't know what he's asking for when he demands that God uses the strict principle of retribution to reward every good deed and punish every bad one. So kind of in layman's terms, where we're at in this story, Job is asking, you know, the question, why do bad things happen to good people? He's saying, you know, why can't you just base the entire universe on reward every good deed and punish every bad one? And the fact of the matter is, is that there will still be bad things that happen to quote unquote good people. And that's a very like that term good people is already sort of misled because the only good person, as I mentioned before, the only good person to ever live was Jesus because he's the only one who lived a sinless, spotless life. So even if someone is, you know, seemingly very, very quote unquote good, there's still a human affected by sin. And so if God really were to, you know, reward every good deed and punish every bad one, every human on this planet would be gone because we all do bad at times, whether we realize it or not. In theory, it sounds right, but in execution, it would create a universe where no human would ever have a chance for trial and error, and more importantly, for growth and change. I don't know about you guys, but it has truly been in my greatest moments of disappointments and suffering that I've realized my great need for God. And the truth is I would never want God's job. No human could ever handle it. Without being blasphemous, it really reminds me of that Jim Carrey movie where essentially the main character becomes God and for a few days he has to answer prayers like via email and hold the balance of humanity. As he answers these prayers, it negatively affects someone else. And eventually things just begin to absolutely fall apart and unravel. And you know, my, my one friend I mentioned earlier who struggled with infertility for three years, it was really hard to watch her go through such deep longing. And I mean, for years, her and her husband are some of the most wonderful Christian people that I know. And if I were to call anyone good, you know, in this lifetime, like they're seemingly so good. They're just, they're great people who love God. And I was, I would pray for them all the time. And I would ask God, like, God, they're amazing people. What are you doing? Like, just give them a child. I don't understand. They're going to be great parents. You know what? Why are we holding back? And I actually said this to my friend because God put this little nugget in my head but it was a really cool thought. And without getting too grotesque here, obviously women have a cycle every month where you, you shed an egg. And I was thinking about how every egg that is shed has the chance to become a human once conception happens. And when conception does happen for the first time ever, a unique genetic code that has never existed before that will never exist again has been formed into a child. He reminded me that he is the writer of all life and that there was a specific egg 
that would become that genetic code that would carry out his great plan and will. While those three years were filled with a lot of prayers for them and and confusion on the waiting period, it all makes sense now when I see them holding their baby boy. That's who God wanted to create. That was the genetic code that he was waiting for. It's interesting how even in the things we see as good and helpful and holy can still potentially have some sort of cosmic effect on the world around us that only God has the ability to see and to time and to calculate and to manage for the good of all humanity. I think about the game of Sims (laughs) and for anyone who was like, a gamer in the 2000s, you'll appreciate this. But I think about the game of Sims. I used to play it for hours, hashtag Rosebud, you know, if you know. Um, And I remember I would like build up a big house. I would fill it with a family. They would start having kids. And, you know, once you started like focusing too much on one character, the other characters, because you could give them tasks, anyone who's not familiar with Sims, you could give them tasks where you like schedule out their day pretty much. But once they reach the end of the task that you've given them, they pretty much decide for themselves like what they want to do. And so if I didn't pay close enough attention and I was too focused on one character, I would pan over to another and like Chad just flirted with the male lady and now Chad and his wife are fighting. Or the teenager Tony decided to cook a grilled cheese instead of doing his homework like I told him to do and now their kitchen is on fire. Can you even imagine what it must be like for God with every human on earth? And the difference between obviously Sims and God and us is that he gave us free will he gave us his word. He instructs, it, he instructs us by the Holy Spirit to carry out his will while assuring us that there are sufferings in this life, but he's with us through them, giving us peace and comfort while ultimately working out all things for the good. I know how hard it is to trust in God when we don't get our way or when things don't go the way we hope, but our response should be to keep the faith and trust in God amidst our disappointment. The Bible Project put it this way. Job questioned God's design, and God responded that Job had insufficient knowledge to do so. Job questioned God's justice, and God responded that Job needs to trust him, and that he should not think that God can be belittled to conform to Job's human perceptions of how the cosmos should run. God asked for Job's trust, not his understanding, and states the cosmos is founded on his wisdom not his justice. Let's change that with the word world. God states that the world is founded on his wisdom and not his justice. Again, going back to what my dad said, life isn't fair. God is fair, but on this side of heaven, we will get God's wisdom, not his fairness or justice until Jesus returns. But again, God told us that and actually promised us that from the very beginning. God has always been honest about that. He's told us that's the reality of life right now. The Bible Project goes on to say, sometimes terrible things happen for no reason, for no discernible reason to any human. The point is that God's world is very good, but it hasn't been perfect since sin entered the garden. Now, the world isn't even always safe like it was supposed to be. Sure, it has order and beauty, but it also is wild and sometimes dangerous. So back to the big question of Job or anyone's suffering, why is there suffering in the world? Whether from earthquakes or hunger or, or disappointment, you know, why do, why do we have to experience suffering? God doesn't explain why. 
He says we live in an incredibly complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. Job demanded a full explanation from God, and what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. So Job responds with humility and repentance. Job apologizes for accusing God of injustice and acknowledges that he overstepped his bounds a little. He's human. He can't be God. Even though Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, God still approves of Job's wrestling. I love that part because God God doesn't get mad at us for our questions. He, he approved of Job's wrestling. It's okay to come to God with your disappointments and your questions. And, and even when you're angry at God, like come to him and say, Lord, I'm upset. Like convince me why I shouldn't be. Show me where in the Bible I can just assure myself in your word, word over the emotions that I'm feeling right now. God approves of how Job approached him honestly with all of his emotion, only wanting to talk to God himself. God says that the right way to process through these issues is through prayer and through coming to him. He's okay with it. So the book of Job doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering, rather than trying to figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like like Job did, or accuse him based on limited evidence. The book invites us to honestly bring our pain and grief to God and trust that he cares, realizing that he knows exactly what he's doing. To deal well with disappointment and accept suffering is to shift our perspective and remember that no amount of suffering or disappointment we experience in this life can ever undo what God has done for us in Christ. So if you're wrestling with disappointment, one thing we are promised is peace and the strength of God. We may not always get answers as to why, we saw, we saw how Job received those things, the peace and the strength of God, and he was humbled before God despite demanding answers previously. So God, going to God, receiving God's peace and strength through prayer is how Job came to have that humility, that repentant heart, and it, it changed his perspective. And guess what? The cool part is, is that we are promised the happily ever after. Even if our situation now seems really rough, we're promised the happily ever after. In Job 42.10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So God doubled what Job had lost in his sufferings. We too are promised the abundance in heaven. That verse isn't supposed to say, you know, if I'm, let's use the, the topic of infertility. If I'm struggling with infertility right now and, and I never conceive a child on this planet, the thought process shouldn't be, I'm suffering right now, so God's just going to give me all these children. It should be forward thinking to heaven that even if, even if it doesn't happen for me here on earth, I too will receive an abundance, a doubling in heaven. We can rest in the peace and comfort that when we know Christ and are living a life apart from sin and repenting for our shortcomings like Job, we too will be restored in heaven. There's another verse that I really love about restoration in Joel 2.25. I use this one all the time. 
It says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. So I grew up on a farm. And I don't know who knows this, but there are different types of bugs that can get into your crops and just absolutely destroy it. And if, you know, your crops are destroyed, your harvest is destroyed and your livelihood, your income is essentially destroyed. So I very vividly can picture, you know, if you have years of swarming locusts attacking your harvest, you're going to have a very fruitless, um, you know, you won't have much produce to show for it. So Reading this verse, I will restore to you all the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Think of how much goes into farming. First, you have to tend to the soil. Then you have to plant. Then you have to water. Then you have to, you know, do all these things to make sure that your harvest is healthy and fruitful. Can you imagine how much was lost if years of locusts ate up all that work? So here in the context of this verse, the locusts had destroyed the Israelites' harvest for years, but Joel promises them that God would restore them from their suffering. And this is everything Joel promised. This is Joel 2, 22 through 23. He p- promises green pasture for livestock. It says the pastures of the wilderness are green. He promises trees and vines that bear fruit. It says the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. It says the spring and summer rains would come as needed for good crop. It says that he has given the early rain. Do you too believe that God can turn your pain into pastures? Do you believe that he will restore your dead branches with blooms of life? Do you believe that he won't just pour into you, but that he would bring an early rain to soothe the pain that you're feeling? So give it to God today. Reaffirm yourself in scripture. He wants to restore to you all the years that you have suffered. But I'll leave you with one final scripture. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season. There's a purpose for everything that you're experiencing. Every walk of life you go through and a time to every purpose under the heaven. In that, we can realize and accept and recognize that when we experience suffering in this life, God is either trying to grow us in a certain way, train us in a certain righteousness, break us of a certain sin, or he's simply just planning out the cosmos There's a cause and effect that we can't see that he can. So today, if you're suffering, if you're experiencing disappointment, whether on this side of heaven or not, all will be restored when Jesus returns. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I hope that this episode has helped you. Um, If if it did help you, please give the, the show a review. Send this to a friend, lift them up, encourage them today, and let's stay rooted in God's word. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time on Christ in Me with Addie.